privilege it is to be together this morning and to see the Lord at work in his people. I've just been so moved by the grace that he's shown us. And uh, if you would, open your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We'll read verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Lord, we hear your words. Lord, we would do them. So Lord, now we ask you, send your Spirit in fullness empty us of our pride and our self-sufficiency, that we might be filled with you, Lord. We might be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, that we might not rely on the wisdom or the power, the eloquence of man, but that we would rely on the power of God. Lord, help us Give us salve that we might see the wondrous things in your law today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness toward us in every way. Amen. All right, I... I have actually been eager to uh, share this passage with you, uh, my beloved church body, for some time now because the Lord has used this passage in my own life to draw me out of idolatry 
and complacency and, and the things that we see the church of Laodicea stumbling and falling into. The Lord has used this very passage in, in so many ways in my life to encourage me and call me to repentance. And I am hopeful and confident that he will use it in all of us. Call us as a, a body to greater devotion. Uh, the Lord showed me one day the, the hardness of my own heart as uh, my son didn't even realize what he was doing, but he walked past with his little iPod listening to, to music and the song playing was A Billion Starving People by Keith Green. And the, the first line he sang, I find it hard to turn away a billion starving people. And I never really liked that song <laughs> because on, on the surface it sounds like he's just, oh, you know, compassion for compassion's sake. But no, the point of the song is I want to save somebody's life so that they can hear the gospel. And I realized as that song, the Lord just stuck it in my head like a burr. I realized the hardness of my heart over that day that my heart could be so different from our Lord's, so closed in hardness against the needs of people all around me for the gospel, for, for practical provision. So this passage calls us to enter into this fight of history, the battle of the ages, the battle for our own souls, for the souls of our children, for the souls of our neighbors, for the souls of people around the world. God is calling us to battle for the fullness of our eternal reward, to battle against the temporary things that draw our eyes, and to battle for the unseen things that will endure forever. So as we, as we hear this letter to the church in Laodicea 2,000 years ago, I, I want to encourage us to hear it for what it is. Imagine being in their position. So the Lord, the Lord has ascended, and the Holy Spirit has come, and the apostles are, are ministering on the Lord's behalf, but the last thing we have from the Lord is, I will come again. And the church is waiting with eagerness to hear her Lord returning. And waiting with eagerness to hear her master's voice. And that is exactly what happens. The Lord, if, if you will, the Lord parts the clouds and speaks directly to this church. Exactly what their needs are. Exactly where they stumble. How much would you love to have that today? The Lord telling you where you struggle, where you're stumbling, where you're failing, and how to repent. And so I love these letters in the beginning of Revelation. That I would never say they're more authoritative than the rest of the scriptures. But listen, there is something very unique here. The risen Lord from heaven speaking to his people. And we ought to let that strike us. With, with awe and wonder to hear our master's voice through these pages. So, uh, to the passage. I 
hope that wasn't too much. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus begins by giving qualifications. He's going to make an indictment against us, right? He's going to, he's going to speak to the Laodiceans and say, here are your faults. And he qualifies himself. He says, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. And so we have to think there is no partiality in his judgments. In everything he states when he makes an accusation, we can be sure of its accuracy. The, the problem here is, as human beings, okay, I'm, I'm sure we've all, I hope, we've all been in the position where someone has needed to, to rebuke us, to correct us when we're in error. Our inclination is not to immediately say, yes, amen, that's right, thank you for correcting me. Our, our reaction is to say, make some excuse, and then maybe we go, you know, we get alone and we think about it and... And, you know, when our minds are cooled off and our pride is a little bit less hot, we repent and hope that nobody notices. Jesus says, I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. When I speak, your answer should be yes and amen. When I make an accusation, when I correct you, our hearts before the word of God should say, yes, amen, Lord, Thank you for this grace that corrects me and that redirects me. It stings, but it shows me your love. And it's so hard for us to lay hold of that. Amen. When he lays bare our faults, there can be no argument. The next phrase, he says he's the beginning of God's creation in ESV. I think a better translation of, of the Greek would be the source of God's creation. Creation originates with Jesus. And so if we think forward to what he's going to say to the Laodiceans, the, the implication of this statement is all of creation belongs to him. Everything we think we own and that we hold dear belongs to and originates with the Lord. So he goes on to say in verse 15, I know your works. Which is an amazing statement. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, the scripture says, watching the evil and the good. So he sees us. He sees the corridors of our hearts, our secret shame. He sees the things that we think we hide from him. He sees the thing that we, things that we hide from ourselves. So Jesus is going to speak to the quality and the health of their faith. And he's even going to call into to, to question the genuineness of their profession. So why does he say, your works? Uh, this is the indictment. Next slide, if you don't mind. So why does he start by saying, your works? So we, we rightly and truly accurately say that a person is justified by faith alone. But 
the scripture doesn't stop there, right? And we can't present that as the whole truth. When, when a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth, right? So the scriptures never stop there. Consider Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We have to be careful because Scripture uses the word justified in, in different senses, right? But, but there's a point. We're getting there. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James describes a faith that cannot save. Is that not amazing? We love the idea, rightly so, that God saves through faith alone. Amen. Faith plus nothing. Faith plus anything is idolatry. But here's the danger. So this idea in James, I think, made Martin Luther so uncomfortable that he said he couldn't find any of the gospel in the letter of James. He didn't like the letter of James. Uh, Apparently, he didn't like the the book of Revelation either very much. Uh, And I don't want to bash Martin Luther because the Lord used him mightily. And I expect to see him in the kingdom, right? But the point is, this is the danger that we face. We, We hold fast to faith alone. We run the risk of separating the works that always accompany true faith. Right? True faith saves alone but it never remains alone. True faith always manifests itself in good works. So Jesus goes on to say, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So Jesus makes an assessment here of their spiritual health and he gives a metaphor. Okay, So imagine he's taking the temperature of a, of a, a dish of food And we sometimes confuse this metaphor with the idea of, you know, zeal or fervor for the Lord is often spoken of as fire, or the Holy Spirit appears as fire. And so we think of heat as a good thing in the scriptures, but that's not necessarily what he's reaching for here. This is, this is food, right, as we're going to see. They're, they're in his mouth in the metaphor. So we can't imagine that cold is, is the evil here or the bad, uh, but this is a, a culinary metaphor. So uh, it actually helped me when it it just crossed my mind one day uh, to think about it this way. Uh, Thinking caps, okay, it may be a little confusing, but uh, in physics, there's, there's a term equilibrium. So when opposing forces even out with each other, they reach a point of equilibrium. So the coffee that you have on the counter that's hot, you leave it there all day, it's going to slowly reach equilibrium with the room around it, okay? Bear with me. Has our faith, has the faith of the the Laodiceans mellowed so much that it has come to look like the world around it? Has the temperature of the world crept into your heart so much that you are indistinguishable? Truthful love distinguishes God's people from everyone around them. 
even lukewarm churches that are all around us. Now, there are a lot of things that distinguish people from the culture. I mean, there are, there are people who live alone on mountainsides to get away from the culture. So it's not just a matter of being distinguished, right? If we're not motivated by Christ, by truthful love to be distinguished, then being distinguished is our idol, right? But it makes me think of, of Moses at Mount Sinai. You know, the, the people are standing back, and maybe they're right to do so. But Moses, God calls Moses into the cloud, into the fire, and Moses goes. Moses doesn't, doesn't stop and think, I might die. I might die if I approach this God. He wants to go and he wants to know this God and he's willing to risk everything. I don't think that Moses felt perfectly safe approaching that God and speaking to him face to face. So the question is, how much are we willing to give up or risk everything to know this God? And are we happy with the amount of God that we have in our lives? Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, the word in Greek is vomit. It is not a pretty image. So I I envision this as Jesus being patiently disgusted with the flavor of the Laodicean church and their, their, their faith their works, their fervor. I say, I say patiently, imagine Jesus cleansing the temple. Okay, remember, remember, he drives out the money changers at least once. I think, I think more than once. Anyway. Um, he comes in and he sees God's temple being misused. And in zeal and anger, he sits down and he fashions a whip. And I love that. It took me a long time to see that. But he sits down and he makes a whip. It's not something you just... And you're done. He takes time. And then he stands up. And in righteous zeal, he drives them out. I think it's the same idea here. Because obviously, he's waiting judgment. He waits judgment. On on all of the unrighteous. He is so unbelievably patient. And he is giving the Laodiceans time to repent. I I thought it was interesting that uh, this is not the first time that the Lord actually speaks like this in Leviticus 20.22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. So this is not a new idea with the Lord. The point of of all of this, this metaphor, being vomited out is not good. People, People argue back and forth about what it means for Jesus to say people will be vomited out. You know, some people say you're going to lose your salvation and some, you know, I think rightly would say these people are not saved and therefore he's going to spit them out. That's not the point. The point is, when you hear this, you want to think, I don't want to be vomited out. Amen? 
The point is not to make some theological dissection and go, oh, what, what exactly does he mean? It's to go, where is my heart? I don't want to be vomited out. Paul says, test yourselves, test your faith to see if you're in it. But he does say, these people are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They don't sound a lot like believers. They don't. But I think it's important that Jesus doesn't make the distinction here. And so the proper response for us is a little bit of fear, is self-inspection. Test ourselves to see if our faith that we claim to have in Jesus is genuine. See if it reflects a genuine, miraculous work of God in our hearts to change us. So why does he say all of this? Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. What a statement to have in your heart. Do you hear the pride welling up, almost shaking their fists at their need for God? I need nothing. Imagine the church of God saying something like this in their hearts. And think about the rich young ruler, uh, uh, the the young man in in Matthew 19. So he comes to Jesus. He says, hey, good teacher. I've kept the law for my youth. What am I going to do to get into heaven? And I imagine he expects Jesus to just pronounce him, him good. But Jesus responds by by cutting through his self-sufficiency to his idolatry. And he goes away sad. Listen to this in Matthew 19, 23 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, and I think this is the right response, who can be saved? Who can even be saved, Jesus, if you're going to say this? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So it's like Jesus is saying, there's a very slim chance. <laughs> There's a very slim chance that rich people will see through their self-sufficiency to their need for God. So the issue here, I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. The issue in the scriptures is not that riches are evil. The material world is not evil and the Bible never teaches that. That is a falsehood. The issue is our idolatrous hearts. We are prone to self-sufficiency. We are prone to look to anything we can to give us value and confidence outside of Christ. And so the more things we have, the more money we have, the more comforts we have, the easier it becomes for us to believe in this sense or this idea, this voice of self-sufficiency within us. And it's insanity. It is latent insanity in every one of us. So the scriptures are full of passages about the dangers of wealth, not the sin of wealth, 
Don't ever hear that. Not the sin of being wealthy, but it's dangers to our souls. Proverbs 30, verse 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What American, if you ask them, do you want to be rich? Even Christians, okay? Go into a church and pick random people. Do you want to, would you like to be rich? If I could make you rich today, who would say no? And yet Paul says that the desire to be rich leads people into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. And I love this, this verse. It's been so misused, so we need, to, we need to pause here. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Okay, we've all heard the American version of this, right? Money is the root of all evil. Like, that's the American saying. It's not true. The scriptures say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's a very important distinction. It's not the money from, from where the evil comes. It's the love in our hearts that is misdirected toward the money, toward the things and the conveniences. The problem that we and probably the Laodiceans had is that we like to exempt ourselves from these passages in the Bible that talk about the rich, right? The Laodiceans, I'm sure, had read Proverbs 30 and said, well, of course, you know, God hasn't given me too many riches. You know, we Americans say, well, maybe, maybe Bill Gates is rich, but I'm not rich. Think about how much wealthier we are in conveniences and in technology and in entertainment and in anything you could imagine than the Laodiceans here that Jesus is speaking to than the people in the scriptures, that, that the people that the scriptures were directed toward two, four thousand years ago. It's not a matter of just how much you have in the bank, but how many conveniences, how much access to information, how much ease you have in your life. We sit here and we don't even think about the fact that we're in air conditioning. But if the air conditioner broke today, Most of us would say, well, we can't meet. Sorry. Let's stay home. And we think that we're not rich. Beloved, we have to start imagining ourselves when we read these passages that caution us. And I don't want to beat on having things. I don't want to bash on air conditioning because it's a a blessing from the Lord. But all of those things easily lead us to idolatry and 
and are examples of the extravagant wealth in which we live. We're like fish, okay? Fish don't notice the water that they're in because it's all they've ever known. Extravagant wealth, even for those of us in, in, in middle and lower class, if you want to call it that, live surrounded by extravagant wealth. It's not evil, but our hearts are prone to wander, prone to idolatry. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I just think it's hard to be poor in spirit when you're rich everywhere else. So the reason I spend so much time on this is because we are in this spiritual battle. This is really going on. If you take anything from this today, I hope it's that this, this that we're reading about, the promises, the warnings, the war that is going on around us is real. It's so easy to imagine that this is just a fairy tale, that this is just a myth that we, that we keep in our minds to please ourselves or our parents or whatever. This is really going on. So let's equip ourselves against the temptations that we face. Verse 18, we we turn this, this wonderful corner. Jesus begins describing the cure for the Laodiceans, for us, we find we're identifying with the Laodiceans. He's, he's, he's prescribing a cure. I counsel to you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So Jesus introduces the cure by properly directing our desires, not condemning them. And he tells the Laodiceans to make a better investment than they have been hoping in. The investments that they have given their time to are temporary. They're subject to moth and rusts and destruction. But Jesus has an infinitely better investment opportunity for us. So what are you not willing to give up to get this gold that he offers you, this investment that he offers you. What could possibly make you pause when this offer is given? Matthew 14, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. His joy, he's not laboring over, giving up his things. He's not pausing and thinking, oh, I want this treasure, but man, I've got all this this house and I've got this stuff. It's going to burn up. He wants the better treasure. In his joy, if you truly see the worth of this eternal gold, this reward, then will be your joy to pursue it. 
1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I'm going to take option A. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to build with precious stones. So, in the passage, Jesus talks about this gold. Is it literal gold? Maybe. I, I have no idea. But, I imagine that this is better than anything that we can express or comprehend. This is a reward offered from Jesus. Okay? There is no hyperbole here. He does not overstate things for emphasis. He is offering a reward that we cannot comprehend, that does not perish. Money bags that do not rot. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Second half of verse 18, second portion. And white garments, invest in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Brother pointed out to me, you think of Adam and Eve sewing together fig leaves to cover their shame and nakedness. God is offering you an infinitely better garment. God is offering you to be covered always with good works and righteousness that accord with salvation. So, I, of course, forgot to put them up, but uh, there's a handful of passages. If you, if you want to just see this worked out throughout the scriptures, you can write them down here. But uh, Psalm 132, verse 9, Isaiah 61, 10. Ezekiel 16, just the whole chapter. Uh, Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. And uh, real quick, I'm just, I want to read this, this passage in Isaiah because it's just so wonderfully indicative of, of what we're seeing here. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. This is Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He, was, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself, like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Just awesome. So we ought to be clothed with good works and according to Luke 24, 49, we ought to be clothed with power through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, look, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
course, he was speaking, looking forward to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. You ought to be clothed with power through the Holy Spirit. And of course, that doesn't mean necessarily miraculous works. But the power of God is bringing his kingdom in the hearts of individuals. Is changing people radically. The power of God is unmistakable when it comes upon a person to change them. You know, Paul said, I was formerly a blasphemer. Amen? So this lukewarmness is a shame on the Laodiceans. It's a shame on any who hold it. It is a shame on me. It is a shame on us. It robs us of our rightful clothing and makes a mockery of us individually and the gospel. It's like, imagine just Christians walking around naked and the world is looking on saying, there's another naked Christian. (laughs) Because we should be clothed in the good works and the righteousness that accord with salvation that we proclaim. Okay, the world knows our claims about the gospel, right? The world, for the most part, knows what we say about the power of God to change hearts. So if we have unchanged hearts, it's like walking around in your shame. The last portion of verse 18. And invest in salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So who then can open the eyes of the spiritually blind? Only the Holy Spirit of God. I want to read to you a quote from a book that has been uh, instrumental in in my life recently uh, called Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. When a man who has crept along for years in conventional Christianity suddenly zooms into spiritual alertness, becomes aggressive in the battle of the Lord, and has a quenchless zeal for the lost, there is a reason for it. But we are so subnormal these days that the normal New Testament experience seems abnormal. The secret of this jet-propelled fellow we've just mentioned is that somewhere he has had Jacob-like wrestlings with God and has come out stripped, but also strengthened by the Holy Ghost. So, here's a question. Can you invite the Holy Spirit to take you by the hand down the corridors of your heart, showing you all of the places where you hide unclean images on the walls, unclean things in the rooms, hidden corridors? Can you invite Him to drive out every form of wickedness And to open your eyes no matter how much of your own sin you will see. Can you invite him to walk freely? To reign completely? To drive out any offensiveness that might grieve him? Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Just a quick summary. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that he may be grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever heard such a thing? Temporary, frail people filled with the fullness of God. The eternal creator. Have you heard such a thing? What are we not willing to do to see this realized in our lives? So Paul spent time on his knees. Paul bowed the knees, the knee before God so that the strength of the spirit and the knowledge of Christ would fill us with the fullness of God. Will we bow our knees? So Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So a devotion to God's word in our personal time is an investment in this salve. We see God's spirit and God's word working in tandem to make these promises true in our souls. There are amazing and utterly unbelievable things all throughout God's Word on every page. Unbelievable things. And I say unbelievable truthfully. We read things we cannot believe without God's help, without God to open our eyes. We read of the unspeakable terrors of hell the immeasurable treasures of the coming kingdom and the promise that our works will stand before God and often we're not even stirred. It doesn't bother us to think about millions on their way to hell. We need salve to open our eyes to these things because so often I find myself blinded by the pursuits of this life, by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches, right? So, some good news. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Isn't that a reassuring word? I hear that and I think of of how the Lord has brought me out of my own complacency. And I think, I never asked you, Lord, to work in my heart to bring me out of complacency. I was perfectly happy in it. But God loves sinners, broken people. He loves the worst kinds of people. And he is committed to fixing the people he loves. He is committed to fixing us. Even when we break ourselves with complacency and self-sufficiency, he is committed to loving, reproof, and discipline. I could despair reading this passage, but for this glimmer of hope. So if you feel reproved, by the word of the Lord to the Laodiceans. Know that Jesus loves you. 
His words of reproof sting. But they are a sign of his love to you right now. His love actively at work in you. His love pulls no punches and his love will expose sin in every place until there is no barrier to the fullness of your joy in him. So what are we left to do? Cooperate with this discipline. Cooperate with him. If you see that your heart is hard, that you are bored by the things of God, confess. Confess your hardness of heart to the Lord with a loud amen. And say, yes, Lord, your word is true. I am in the wrong. Help me. Pour out your life and your interests and your pride on the Lord's altar as an offering. So how? How do we do that? The Lord tells us. So be zealous and repent. Amen. What is zeal? Sometimes we, we don't hear it talked about very often in, in American Christianity. What is zeal? And I, I went around and around trying to find a, a good definition for this. And the best thing I have is being fired up for Jesus. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Okay, so being slothful in zeal is one thing. Presumably the opposite of that is being fervent in spirit. Okay, getting fired up to serve the Lord. Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So by zeal, Jesus drove out those money changers. By zeal, Stephen looked death in the face and saw the glory of God in the stones. By zeal, Paul rebuked Peter in front of everybody for his gospel-denying hypocrisy. By zeal, Ezekiel laid on his sides for 430 days eating bread cooked over cow dung. Zeal has an emotional component, yes, It is an emotional response that propels people to good works. It is a good thing to be emotional. So the caveat is that many of us have bought into the idea that stoicism is part of the gospel. We have all seen the abuses of churches around us and around the world where emotionalism and sensationalism are all they have. It seems that their experiences are fabricated and that the Holy Spirit they have often contradicts the Word of God. So we see those abuses and our tendency is to react so hard and deny, deny the emotion and the fervor that the Bible commands. So consider for a moment how much our enemy, the deceiver, would like to convince us 
that zeal and being filled with the Holy Spirit are more of a threat than he is. Satan loves polished, presentable Christians because zeal undoes people. Zeal is messy. It's uncomfortable and it's hard and it makes people look a little bit crazy. It does. Look at people in the scriptures. John the Baptist. (laughs) Jesus said there was no one greater born of woman on earth. The dude lives in the forest, wears camel skins, and eats bugs and honey, okay? He's full of zeal. He is the least polished, presentable person you could imagine. If John the Baptist walked in our church, we would have serious security concerns, right? Zeal is uncomfortable, Even for us as Christians, zeal is uncomfortable. I remember times when people have, you know, I've been complaining about one thing or another and, you know, saying, oh, it's just, I have it so hard. And, you know, a brother will say, well, can I pray for you? Say, sure. And they say, right now? And I go, oh, that's really uncomfortable. That's really awkward, isn't it? Like, we're just going to stand here in public and bow and pray. I had a moment the other day when I was, I was in a certain place and I was just really feeling overwhelmed. And I felt the need to pray. And, you know, this is a public place. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be so uncomfortable and awkward if somebody walks in and, you know into this, this, this room and sees me on my knees praying. And then I realized, what am I afraid of? I'm communing with the God of heaven. Why am I ashamed of this? This is the greatest privilege on the planet. Why would I be ashamed to, to commune with him? So be zealous, therefore, and Repent. When you're lukewarm, you may not need to repent from some obvious external sin, right? I mean, I think most of us, most of us wouldn't imagine that we're in need of church discipline right now, right? We're we're not in some grievous external sin. But it is sin not to be zealous for the Lord. Jesus commands it. The scriptures command it. Jesus says, repent and be zealous, or repent unto zeal. Turn your lukewarmness around and make it zeal. Make it fervor for the Lord. We cannot do this for ourselves. The point of the passage is stop relying on yourself and on the things around you. Okay, we cannot substitute the world's goods and wisdom for the presence and power of God. The point of the passage is rely on the Lord. So we require the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to ignite this zeal. But we, we often feel powerless, right? Right? 
we feel powerless to overcome our sin. And so somebody will correct us about something or we hear a scripture, you know, we hear somebody talking about, you should, you know, you should be in the word of God. You should be reading regularly and praying regularly. And we think, yeah, that's true. God changed me. All right, on about my day. We don't stop and lay hold of God until he helps us. We think we're powerless and we think God doesn't care enough to change us. We think that some cursory prayer is good enough and that it's not our fault if we remain in this this sin and indifference. It's, It's fatalism, right? And it's a lack of faith in God. So how do we get this zeal? How do we stir it up? And I have a few just quick thoughts on the, on the, the slide here, but I'll go through in prayer. Point one, prayer. So a quote from Matthew Henry here. When God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is set them a-praying. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I've had so many conversations with people here recently where, you know, I'm talking about the things that the Lord is doing in my heart, especially through this passage. And, uh, you know, a brother will resonate with me and say, wow, yeah, you know, the Lord has really been stirring me up through this and this and this. And I've been seeing my need to walk in prayer and this and walk with the Spirit. And I've heard a surprising number of testimonies that the Lord is at work in tangible ways right now. And I believe that the Lord is setting us a-praying. Let's cooperate with that, right? The God of heaven, the God, the, the God of all creation, He has invited us to freely approach Him And even he's given us his spirit to help us to pray, right? It may be the single greatest privilege on earth. Would that we could see it for what it is. For even just a moment. I think it would be hard to stop us doing it, right? So we must wrestle with God in prayer. And if you want to know how important it is to God that we wrestle Him in prayer, okay? Consider, God named His special people, Israel, after an incident where Jacob wrestles with God. All night, wrestling with God. The name Israel means... God wrestles, or more likely, I think, wrestles with God. God named his people wrestles with God. Shouldn't wrestling with God in prayer characterize us? So how much time do we spend in prayer? I mean, literally, compare it to the amount of time that we spend on TV or or on relaxing or, or... Whatever, insert whatever you think you need to insert there. 
compare it to the amount of time that we spend on various other things. Do we love to pray? Consider Jesus, who often slipped away to pray. Right? The scripture says he would slip away and go into barren places and pray. Because he loved to pray. We, we slip away to do the things that we love. Jesus loved to pray. And he's extended that privilege to us. Would that we would learn to love, to pray, to commune with our good father. The spirit of adoption within us that says, Abba, Father. When we close our eyes to pray, do we see the backs of our eyelids? Or does the eye of faith pierce through the darkness and see an image of this God of the scriptures hearing our prayers, seated on his throne, moving creation to help us in answer to prayer. Amazing, amazing thought. So, and I think it has been rightly said that the prayer meeting should be one of the most highly attended events in the life of a church. Let's wrestle together with God in prayer. So, point two, and how, how do we get zeal? Matthew six seventeen and 18. Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So especially when we're having trouble praying, right? Especially when we're having trouble concentrating on prayer, fasting is an amazing way to commit ourselves to, con- to, to concentrated prayer for a time, right? We deny our bodies the, the things that we, we cleave to, right? We, we cleave to our daily bread. We love to eat. I love to eat. We deny ourselves that in order to have, for a time, something better, right? And concentrate on it. Man, what a wonderful reminder the pains of hunger are that you must be praying, that you have needs right now. Isn't it amazing? We forget about that. We forget about that all the time because we're full all the time. We don't have, we don't have problems being uncomfortable or sweaty most of the time. You know, we just, we're not con- conscious of our need. Fasting is such an important tool. So in case, in case you're not familiar with that idea, just to be clear, fasting is a temporary commitment to prayer by which you Deny yourself normally food, okay? Food for the purpose of committing yourself to pray for something specific, okay? The passage says, ends with a wonderful, a wonderful promise, the passage in Matthew 6. He will reward you. Okay, we... we this is a matter of obedience. This is not a matter of... of working to improve, uh, improve your standing with God. We don't believe in works righteousness for even a second, right? He, 
In fact, I, I just I want to read a parallel passage real quick that, that clarifies this, I think, from James chapter 4. Okay, this is, this is James' formula for revival. Okay, this is amazing. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful promise? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We love that verse, but he goes on. And here's the rest of the formula for, for revival, if you can call it that. Be wretched. Oh, I'm sorry. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A great and precious promise. So, point three. Try and and speed up here. To ignite our zeal... It's, it's pretty simple. We should press into the resources. We should take hold of the things that fire us up, right? We should spend time in the things that fire us up. God's word, the, the authors and musicians and preachers that get us fired up, right? Press into those. Spend time with those. Point four. We can never ride on yesterday's faith and obedience. Okay? Jesus taught us to say, give me this day my daily bread for a reason. If we don't wake up in the morning and first thing have the Lord on our minds, have scripture in front of us and prayer on our hearts, there's no telling where the day is going to take us. We cannot ride on yesterday's obedience. Just because we prayed for an hour yesterday doesn't mean that we're walking with God today. And if we trust in that, if we trust in ourselves, we'll very quickly find that that faith of yesterday is, is fading into complacency. We should be on guard. Okay. The good part. Verse 20. The reward. Look. I stand at the door and knock. Now for just a moment, can you imagine? We're back, we're back to Laodicea. Can you imagine Jesus standing outside of the door of his own church, knocking to be let in? It boggles the mind. Okay? This is not Jesus, as, we, as we've often heard, okay? This is not Jesus feebly begging the unbeliever to be let in, right? This is the church, supposedly. So the Laodiceans here have decided that they are perfectly fine with just a little bit of God's presence and power, okay? So just enough to escape judgment, right? Just enough. Uh, another, another quote from that book, uh, Why Revival Terries. If all that you want is to be saved, sanctified, and satisfied, the Lord's battle hath no need of thee. 
the Laodiceans wanted to be saved from judgment and otherwise be pretty civilized, right? Put Jesus out. We're good in here. But hear, hear his gentleness, okay? It's, it, it's not feebleness, but it is gentleness. Jesus knocking, hoping to rouse them, right? Wake them up. He's working in subtle ways. He could kick down the door, but he's working in subtle ways. I don't hear that knocking as idleness on Jesus' part. He's not standing out there waiting. He's working. He is working every day. If you are in Christ, he is working to bring you back to him in fullness, in faith. If you are outside of Christ, he is calling you now to be in Christ, to find him, to find salvation. Second half of verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, okay, so he's speaking as well. He's speaking and knocking. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I I know I, you know, I sound all serious. I feel like I'm <laughs> I I I feel like I've been so um, dreadful the whole time, but but here is a wonderful wonderful Word of promise. I mean, we don't think of a, of a, of a meal with an individual as like a great privilege normally. Uh, you know, we eat meals with people all the time, hopefully, Lord willing, right, as Christians. But this is the God of heaven, your Redeemer, the judge of all the earth. He has eyes that are of fire and a sword in his mouth, okay? This, this man of all men, the Lord of all, is inviting you to have a meal with him. I think, I think all of us would take a, a, a meal with a world leader pretty seriously, you know? We would think of that as a privilege, probably. Depends on which one. But this is Jesus himself saying, I will come have intimate fellowship with you. I will be near you. You know, you listen to to these accounts in the scriptures of of the apostles and the early church being persecuted for Christ. And you get this sense that they know that the Lord is walking with them through these trials. They praise God that they were able to be like Jesus in his suffering, to share with him, to walk with him. Isn't that amazing? To be so, so happy only because you have the nearness of the Lord Jesus. He who dwells in unapproachable light has made a way for us to know him and to dine at table with him. So verse 21, to the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is real. This should mess us up, church. 
And I mean that in the best possible way. This should mess us up. This should change our priorities. Right? This should affect us on a daily basis. Jesus is calling us into the war, into the battle of the ages. Will we conquer self-sufficiency and idolatry and lukewarmness? There are no discount rates for revival, for revolution of soul. But Jesus has purchased with his own blood and offers you the tools to conquer. Are you willing to invest fully? Are you willing to invest fully in the things that he offers you? In the graces that are yours now? In Christ Jesus. They are his tools because he walked the path before us and he was a faithful witness to the coming kingdom, to the rule of God the Father throughout his whole life. So the good news is that our idols may yet be conquered, right? We struggle with them. We anguish over them, but they may yet be conquered Looking to the goal and end of our faith, Jesus, right? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He ignored the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He invites us to conquer with him. So here's, here's the, the, the final application Dear church, if you test your faith today, you find it's not alive and burning with zeal as it should be, lay hold of the Lord's throne and don't let him go until he helps you to repent and become zealous. If you test your faith and you find that you are not lukewarm, all the promises are yours. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And he loves and will reprove and discipline you. And you can trust him. But if you test your faith, today and you find it is not genuine, that there has never been a fire in your bones, that there has never been a miracle of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit coming in to change your heart. Look to Jesus who endured the cross to save your soul from the wretched things that you cleave to, from the wretched things that take your mind away from him. Jesus died to save you from these things and you can be saved through faith 
This faith is a gift from Him. You cannot be self-sufficient in this faith either. You cannot manufacture this faith. This faith is a gift from Him. Call on Him and do not let Him go until He does an unmistakable work of grace in your heart. So, what does it mean to sit on the throne with Jesus? What does that mean? I have no idea. It sounds amazing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.